Father, thank you again for this opportunity to be together. Use us, use your spirit in us now in this moment to cause us to see you more clearly, to love you more deeply, to follow you more closely. Our desire, Lord, is to be like you, and we need you to work that in us to make it a reality. We do love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if your family is anything like mine, you will at times sit down to watch a movie. And when you sit down to watch a movie, there are many, many movies that you could watch where I can finish getting my dinner and pouring a drink, probably coffee, before I sit down to watch the movie. And if I miss the first five minutes, it doesn't matter because Simba is going to become the king of the Pride Lands, and I will be able to figure it out as the movie progresses. But there are then a few of those movies where my kids say, Dad, if you miss the beginning, you won't understand what's going on. Okay, I will try my best not to miss the beginning. Otherwise, we have been known to restart movies. That's not always my fault. Sometimes it might be. But we have restarted things so that we can catch the beginning because it wasn't making sense as you started to go forward. This morning, we are going to look at the first two verses of Ephesians, which you might think is a waste of your time, but it's not. It really truly is not. What we're going to get is the greeting, the salutation of Paul to the people. And they write their letters differently than we do. And he starts with a, a much more robust beginning than most of us begin our letters. You know, you know what a letter is, right? These are things you would write on a piece of paper. You'd say, dear so-and-so, comma, new paragraph, you know, you can still do that. Um, I don't really remember the last time I did do that, but, but, but it's still possible. Well, here, they would write letters differently. Uh, notice, and before we really jump into it, just notice the format, right? He starts with, instead of dear Ephesian people, he starts with what we put at the very, very end, starts with I, Paul. Who is it from? not to whom is it written. He starts with I, Paul. Okay, it's different than we're used to. Again, it's still a greeting. Do we care? The answer is yes, we care a lot. Why? Because God inspired his word, right? We look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or the woman, the people of God, would be equipped for every good work. Right? That's, that's what we get. All scripture is that. Okay. Um, great. That, that's how we usually treat it. All scripture is breathed out by God, right? But, but this, is just, this is just the hello. 
See, part of the problem is we show up at church or at work or on the golf course or, or at a coffee shop and we say, hey, how are you doing? To which the person responds, I'm doing well, you? Oh, I'm doing great, regardless of whether you're doing well or not. I remember getting together with somebody one time. I said, how are you doing? Their spouse had just died. They're saying, I, I'm doing well. Like, seriously, we both know you're not. So let's just, let's just restart how are you doing? And then we had a different conversation. They weren't trying to, but just out of habit, they were doing well. That's not this type of greeting. This is an intentional, inspired by God greeting to these people, which carries weight and meaning because it's part of God's word. So now let's start at the beginning. Let's not miss the first five minutes of the movie. Let's start at the beginning. Catch how he sets up his letter to these people so that we can understand the purpose, the point, the intent of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're going to try to determine what the main thrust of those two verses is, how would you go about that? First of all, you would try to see, are there any things repeated? Whether well, something repeated three times in two verses and a variant of it two more times in these three verses. What is that? Jesus Christ and God the Father. Verse one, by the will, or, uh, apostle of Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Five times in two verses, Paul intentionally and specifically sets up the focus on God. Remember last week we talked about exalting Christ in all things, especially as we're preaching. Now Paul sets up his letter to the Ephesians and to the saints in general, but to the Ephesians by focusing their attention directly and specifically on Jesus and on God, not on Paul. Right? He starts by saying he's writing it, but then immediately shifts the focus to Christ. How so? Well, Paul says that he's an apostle. That's how it starts, right? What is an apostle? We must state what this is. We must understand what an apostle is in order to be able to, to really understand this. An apostle was somebody who saw the risen Lord, who then was given specific authority by Christ to begin the installation of his church amongst the world in general. These are then the 12 disciples who became the apostles. And, and that is a very particular role. How did Paul get that role? What does he say? See, a lot of times I will ask you questions and, and I understand it's a sermon, so I'm speaking 
I'm standing here and so you expect me to answer the question for you. Uh, but in life or in sermons, I'm going to ask questions because that's what we see here. And frequently we, we want to answer the question by looking at the person who asked the question and hoping that they're going to tell us. But frequently the answers to our questions are written right here. And if they're not written here, then we have to be careful with what answers we give, right? But most of the questions that we ask are going to be answered right here. How did Paul become an apostle? He became an apostle by the will of God. When? On the, well, really, as we get into more of Ephesians, we're going to find out it was really a long time ago. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And I don't want to get too far ahead because that's next week. That's an incredible thing to think about, that God chose to redeem us before there was a world in which we sinned, from which we needed to be redeemed. Anyway, next week. Come back. It's great fun. But God chose to, to redeem Paul and make him an apostle at that point. But when did that actually take place? In Acts chapter 8, we find that Paul, who had been an abuser, an oppressor, a persecutor of the church of Christ, had then gone to Damascus. And on his way to Damascus, God intervened and Christ appeared to him and changed him. He didn't really give Paul, if you read the story, he didn't really give Paul this ultimatum. He didn't say, Paul, believe in me or I'm going to make you blind forever. He just made him blind for a time. And he said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, I don't know who you are. And he said, I'm Jesus, believe in me. And that was the end of it. He didn't give Paul options. He told Paul what to do. Why? Because he had already chosen Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles so that he would engage with and write to the Ephesian believers some 30, 20 years later so that we would have the letter of Paul to the Ephesians inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we would understand who he is, grow and learn and be like him. This letter was written roughly 60 A.D., not that it super matters to us, because whether it's 50 AD, 60 AD, 30 AD, it was a long time ago, right? None of us are, are intimately familiar with those times. But Paul wrote this while he was in prison in Rome, in house arrest, waiting to be executed. He wrote this letter to the Ephesians. So while we see what's here and hear Paul's heart for these people, we should keep in mind that he was imprisoned while he wrote it. Some other important things to know. This is a one, of, well, it's not quite a unique book or unique letter of Paul. It's, it's close to that. Unique technically means it's unlike any other, right? So, so just so you know, for my sake, if you say something is pretty unique inside, I will die just a little bit because something can't be pretty unique it's either unique or it's not. If it's pretty unique, it means it's not unique. It means it's rare, not unique. Anyway, just so you know, as you know me, so if you really just want to mess with Brock, just make sure you say some of these things that I tell you in passing. Oh, that was a pretty unique day. <sighs> It'll be good for me. It really will. See, you have to get to know me a little bit more. It's just, I'm, I'm odd, right? But there's only one other letter that's really like this one that Paul's written that we have access to. That's the letter to the Romans. 
because there was not a particular issue within the Roman church that Paul needed to address. You get to the Corinthian letters, there were issues they needed to address. Galatians, issues that needed to be addressed. Always, always, always issues that needed to be addressed. Even when you get to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, these are written to pastors who have issues going on in their churches that Paul is addressing. But Ephesians, like Romans, has no particular issue. Paul will address some things, but that's not the thrust of the letter. It allows us to have a look into Paul's theological perspective on the church in general as we follow Christ, instead of the church in particular as they address issues. And so we get to, in, to engage with that, to see it. Now, if you did your homework, somebody called it homework. I try to not give you homework, except I told you to do it at home, the work to do at home before you came back, which sounds an awful lot like homework. We had, we had said, and, and my fault was, I forgot to say it in the first sermon last week, um, this is Brock getting used to there being two sermons in one day. You know, anyway, read the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. Read it every week. Every week we're going through this. And just so you know, I have figured out how many weeks it's going to take us. Um, it's going to take us until Memorial Day to get through this. I know that seems terribly slow, but it's not. But it sort of feels like it, but it's not. There's so much there that to just blow through it and act like, oh, we could talk about an entire chapter which has all these different ideas in it in one day just doesn't do justice to the text because there's more there than what we can pull out in 30 minutes talking about 30 verses or in this case, even 23 verses in chapter one. And so read it, engage with it, know what's there so when we show up together, we can engage with the text that we've all been reading and see what the Lord is teaching us through that. But you're gonna find something as you read through this. So if you read all of it, especially if you read it all in one sitting, you're gonna find that there was a particular oddity that you may or may not have picked up on. Chapters one through three read very different than chapters four through six. And I wouldn't expect that somebody would just say, oh, I know exactly what that is, but they read differently. When I candidated, I told you that I was odd and I liked grammar. So I'm going to teach you something about grammar. Verbs are incredibly important to sentences, to, to structure, right? There are two different particular kind of verbs that are used throughout this book. Chapter one through three or chapters one through three uses one kind of verb. You get to chapters four through six and Paul shifts to a different kind of verb which is why it reads differently, chapters one through three, verses four through six. Chapters one through three uses indicative verbs, which just simply means they indicate, right? Indicative, it indicates truth. It says, here's a true statement. Chapters four through six shift to imperatives, commands. Because of these three chapters of indicative truths, do this. In fact, we can see that. Chapter 3, verse 20, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Sort of a benediction, right? In fact, spoiler alert, you're going to hear that benediction later in the service from Julie at the end 
So when you hear it again, you can leave. I won't read it again until then. But then there's a shift. That's the end of three. Sort of this, this end of, of letter benediction, which is normally where you'd expect to find that. And then a shift in four. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, command. Shift from truths to command at chapter four, verse one. When you read through this text, you will notice it reads different when you hit that. See, it goes from here's what you need to know to here's how you must act because of that. So for these first three chapters, we're going to learn about God, learn about Christ over and over and over. And then we're going to shift to what then must we do? We're not going to ignore what must we do in the first three chapters. We will address it. We're not going to ignore truths about God in the second three chapters. We will address them, but the focus will shift from what do we know to what do we do. So when we read it, know that's coming. If you're gonna read, if you're gonna read Ephesians in one sitting, wonderful, best way to read it. Because usually when you write a letter to somebody, you don't intend for them to read part of it one day and then part of it four days later, or better yet, to even start your letter in the middle of your letter. If you write a two-page letter to somebody and they just start reading on page two, they're like, I don't know what's going on. Well, we treat the letters in the scriptures differently. We're like, oh, we could start in the middle. It doesn't matter. No, start at the beginning. At least once, read it beginning to end without stopping. If you listen to it in your car on your version Bible app, it took me 15 minutes and 47 seconds to get through it. So if you're going to be in the car for more than 15 minutes and 47 seconds, you can listen to all of Ephesians while you're driving to wherever you're going. Just a side note. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Who is in charge of this? God is in charge of this. God is in charge of where Paul's at, the position that Paul holds, okay? It's to the saints. Technically, as, we, as we've learned more about the ancient writings, uh, the to Ephesus seems to have been added a little bit later, but that's where it certainly seems to have been written. But whether it's to the saints around Ephesus, in Ephesus, or just to the saints in general, it would still be true, right? To the saints, which are who? Believers in Jesus. That's what a saint is. Somebody set apart differently. Somebody sanctified, made holy. Those are the people who have the Holy Spirit. If you go down to verse 13, verses 13 and 14 of chapter one, he says this, in him you also, Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. These are saints because they've been marked, sealed by the Holy Spirit as, as a guarantee of their inheritance, as a guarantee of their life in Christ, of their sainthood right? It's to the saints who are in Ephesus. And what? What presumption does Paul make about these saints in Ephesus? That they are faithful. What does that mean? It means unchanging, right? 
It means not looking to somebody else. A faithful spouse is someone who, who doesn't go outside of their marriage to find uh, sexual fulfillment, to find even that deep, intimate, emotional fulfillment. It's somebody who stays within their marriage to find those things that their marriage is supposed to give them. So now to the saints in Christ who are faithful are the ones who aren't going to other gods. They're not going to other things. They're not finding their value or identity outside of Jesus. Now, let's admit, we all struggle with that. We all fail in that. This isn't a, this person has failed once, it's done sort of thing. But the faithful in Jesus are the ones who continue to intend and continue to find their identity in Christ. They're faithful to him. There's no life other than with him. That's why Jesus in John chapter six looks at the, uh, the disciples after everybody's leaving him and he says, do you, do you wanna go too? And their response is, or Peter's response is, where would we go? You hold the words of life where else are we going to go to get that? So I guess we'll stick it out. Even though this seems wild and crazy, we'll stick it out. That's the faithful. Now what? Okay, that's the, that's the setup of the setup, sort of. What does Paul offer to them? Because he is an apostle of Christ by the will of God because they are saints and are faithful what does he offer to them that they can't get anywhere else grace and peace is that what he offers technically no that was a trick question i that is not right for me to trick you with questions on week 2 of being here i realize he offers them grace and peace in Jesus. He doesn't just offer them grace and peace because these are people who live in a, a, an empire that has no peace. An empire constantly at war. It had been constantly at war. In fact, most of these people were taken over by the Romans at one point. So there had been a particular war and then Rome is going to continue to be in battle until it falls in the third or in the fourth century. There's no peace in the sense that there's no conflict because even these people who are, who are Roman citizens live in an oppressive state where the Roman guards, the legion, are there to enforce acting like a Roman. It's not peaceful. You're constantly dealing with people with swords. Our, their version of our machine guns. So he doesn't offer peace to them. He offers peace in Christ. He doesn't offer grace to them. He offers grace in Christ because in this world we will have trouble, Jesus says. But take heart, what? He, well, he says I, but he was speaking. He has overcome the world. Which is why then Paul can offer grace and peace in Jesus in the midst of a tumultuous, unpeaceful situation. But also, what exactly is grace and what exactly is peace? We talk about somebody saying, oh, you've got lots of grace. Why? Because you did a cartwheel that looked so smooth and nice. Not that kind of grace, right? 
not that kind of grace at all. So scripturally speaking, what does grace mean? It means that you or I receive something good that we do not deserve. Not to be confused with mercy, which is you or I not receiving something bad that we do deserve. There are punishments that I deserve because of my sins and by the mercy of God, he doesn't lay those on me. And by the grace of God, instead of giving me punishments and consequences, I do deserve, he gives me good things, life in Christ, forgiveness that I don't deserve, grace. So when he offers grace to these people, it's not this sort of ethereal, abstract, unimportant thing. He's offering the life. He's offering the, the, the good that we get from Christ, all of it that we don't deserve. Why? Because Christ gives it to us. Chris prayed this morning that, about God giving us this life and regeneration. And that is so true. We're gonna engage with that more later. But what does it mean that, that he gives us grace? You cannot earn it, right? By definition, if you can earn grace, you know what it's no longer? It's no longer grace. Because grace means you've gotten something good you don't deserve, right? So if you can work for it in any sort of way, it's no longer grace, it's payment. That's the difference. Payment is you doing a job for somebody and then paying you because you did the job. Grace is somebody who was supposed to do the job but instead didn't do the job or broke the job and you paid them anyway. That's grace. Peace. It's this non-turmoil moment or, or position that we have, again, in Christ. So what turmoil did we have in Christ? If we go to Romans chapter 5, we see in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's the grace, reconciled, saved by his life. But the reality is we started as not neutral, undetermined people. We started as enemies of God, dead in our sins, Paul writes, opposing God at every turn and in every way. Yet in his grace, he gave us reconciliation. Means he paid our debt, right? Brought us back from that place and gave us peace in him, a peace with God that we could get no other way than through him giving it to us. It's really simple. We forget how simple it really is, but we know that if person A and person B have a conflict, person A has harmed person B. Who is the only one who can make the relationship right? Person A can apologize, but they can't make it right. The only one who can right that relationship is person B, forgiving person A. That's how it works with God. God didn't harm us. He didn't wrong us. We wronged him. We violated his character in every aspect of our existence. 
and then needed reconciliation. We needed him to right the relationship with us. So what? So what then do we do? If we've received grace and if we've, re we've received mercy, what then do we do? We actually get the answer here. This one's a little bit more hidden. Paul says, right? So pay attention to this. This is back in Ephesians 1 and 2. 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. There's his reference to Jesus. Christ Jesus, right? By the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What is the difference between those first two notations of Jesus and the third? He's given a different title, an additional title. Lord, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How should we respond to Jesus as our Lord. What does it mean that he's our Lord? The closest thing we get is boss. And boss does not carry the same weight as Lord. If you defy your boss, you know what you get? Fired. If you defy your Lord, do you know what you get? Dead. Honestly, a Lord had that power. To violate the Lord's command was instant justifiable death. So when Paul refers to Jesus as our Lord, he's not saying, here's somebody that you probably should consider and think about obeying. He's saying, here is your Lord, the master who controls life and death for you. Obey him at that sort of level. The sort of level that says, I don't like what you just said but I'm not even going to tell you that. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to not understand maybe what you're telling me to do, but I'm going to do it. Oh, you've given me freedom, right? Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. We're given freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For what? For freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin, not freedom from him. Freedom from sin. And that rhymed way more than I intended. Anyway, let's just acknowledge that, that all of a sudden my brain was caught in a cycle of rhyming and I didn't know what to do with it for a moment. So we are not free from Jesus. We're free from the sin that enslaved us. But do not... Use your freedom, we'll find in other places, right? We're free, but we are not to use our freedom in one place, he says, as a cover-up for evil. Here he says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, slavery to sin, which each one of us can get caught up in. That doesn't mean we're gonna come to this later again. Your, your re-inviting sin to enslave you does not negate your salvation. It can't. Because according to Ephesians 1, what is the guarantee of our salvation? The Holy Spirit is the guarantor of our payment for salvation, which means there's no onus on us to pay it. It's on him. He has guaranteed the payment. Not guaranteed the payment if we do what he wants. He's just guaranteed the payment. 
but don't return again to a yoke of slavery. Don't use your freedom as a covering for evil or as an excuse to do what is wrong. Oh, God is going to forgive me anyway, so it doesn't really matter if I X. No, it does matter because doing X violates his character. He's made us free. He's paid the penalty for our sin, which is death. He paid it. He took God's wrath on himself. And so we don't then return to that yoke of slavery. Very particularly, we come to Matthew chapter 18, and and it's a story about an unforgiving servant. And we get to the end of it. We probably are all familiar with it. There's a servant who owes in effect, $5 million to his landowner. And he has like 75 to his name. No way to pay this back. It's not even possible. And the king says, you know what? I'm gonna forgive your debt. And this servant then goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him $35. And he says, if you don't pay me, I'm gonna throw you in jail you rotten, dirty person. And it comes to the king's attention, and here's what he says in verses 32 and 33. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all your debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should you not have not given punishment to someone you could have because I didn't give punishment to you? So we must forgive, must act in the manner in which God acted toward us. Why? Because Jesus is our Lord who gave us peace with God that we didn't deserve, who gave us grace with God, with him, life we didn't deserve because we are his saints or therefore we are his saints. And we have this letter written by Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus made that way by the will of God. Verses one and two of Ephesians chapter one. He sets up the whole book for us. Let's read it, engage with it, and know it, follow it, exalt Christ as we exposit the word and as we exhort each other. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us and thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for allowing us to to have your word, to be taught by it, to grow in it, to know you through it. We ask, Father, that you would be honored in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives as as we learn to love you more. We do love you, Father. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.